as you can tell from the slide, my sermon is not a Mother's Day message this morning. Um, those of you who have been here a while know I typically don't follow those kind of calendars and so forth, but uh, we will have a time toward the end of the service where we will acknowledge our mothers and um, we'll be asking the moms or a representative from their family to come forward and get a, a rose uh, from our uh, flower arrangement up here. And uh, so uh, I just also want to say, um, you know, just a, just a word um, to our moms. Um, Y'all do so much. Um, I think back on my mom. She passed a few years ago. Um, and how hard she worked for our family. And I look at my own wife and how hard she works for our family. And, and I know that that is a, a reality for many of you. And um, I just want to say thank you uh, for that. And uh, I'll be praying God's richest blessings on you uh, a little bit later in the service. But I just want to acknowledge that before I... I got into the message itself uh, this morning. Let's uh, let's bow forward to prayer, then we'll jump into the message. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the gift of family, um, for mothers and fathers, and just the fact that you have shown us what it looks like to uh, to love. And God, I pray today as we look at your word that you would. Uh, just remind us once again of the gifts of your blessings and your place and your position in our lives, Lord. We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we've been moving through uh, the Bible. We've taken a journey uh, beginning before creation, uh, moved into Genesis, and we've moved all the way through. And today we find ourselves at the end, book of Revelation. And uh, the last words uh, in the book of Revelation, the last words in the Bible, simply says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. You have there a reflection of uh, the desire, the the the. the the commitment to the, the relationship that we've seen highlighted in so many ways as we've journeyed through the Bible. Our prayer is truly, uh, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to that day. We look forward to that reunion. We look forward to that renewal. We look forward to that resurrection. We look forward to that transformation that will be brought. Now, whenever you start talking about the second coming, you even mentioned it just a little bit, a little Sometimes people get really excited. Sometimes people get really nervous. Sometimes it's a mixture of both those emotions. You know, uh, where is he going to go? What's he going to say? Am I going to agree with him? Those sorts of things. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, probably no subject in Scripture more debated within people who believe pretty much the same on everything else than the issue of the second coming. Um, you know, um, and that's because it hadn't happened yet. And so we have a lot of disagreement as to exactly how it's going to play out. But let me just uh, identify just real quickly here four things that uh, Orthodox believers all agree on. Okay, So what I, what I mean by this is the people who would fall within Christianity, not cults, not sects, uh, not other groups that are on the fringe. These are, these are the core beliefs 
about Christ's return that all Christians agree on, regardless of if you're, uh, you know, a post-millennial or a pre-millennial or an amillennial or a pan-millennial. You know, where it's all going to pan out in the middle. Whatever you know, whatever millennial you are, you're going to fall into. You're going to agree on these four things. These four things we all hold to. We hold to tightly. We believe that these are are important parts of our faith. Important parts of our relationship with Christ. The first is that Jesus' return will be personal. He himself will come back. Okay, It's not going to be some whatever. It's not going to be just some random reality where uh, it's not real clear what's happening or who's in charge or why it's happening or those sorts of things. Uh, secondly, his return will be visible. Uh, when we talk about the second coming uh, of Christ, it is clearly portrayed, expressed, communicated as a visible return. Now, there are those who uh, will argue for a rapture that happens before the second coming. Um, and again, that's a, that's a matter of some debate. But when we're talking about the actual second coming, it's a visible return of Jesus, in which everybody, every eye sees, every, every heart knows what has transpired. Third, the dead will be physically resurrected. Okay? not going to be a spiritual resurrection. It's not going to be a a spiritual reality. It is a physical reality. Just as Christ rose from the grave physically, we will, if we have passed, we will rise from the grave as well. And you have that that hope and that, that reality that is expressed to us. And then fourth, all people will be judged. The righteous and the wicked. The righteous will be judged and, and granted uh, entrance into an eternal relationship, an eternal uh, connection, an eternal life and existence uh, in the presence of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, and with other saints as well. And the wicked will be punished and uh, will uh, suffer uh, eternal punishment accordingly. So those are the four things that, that we all agree on. Okay, those are the four things we're, we're all good to go with. Okay, um, and, and I'm not really going to go into to any other kind of outlines of of the, the 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 events or anything like that that's not my purpose here today my purpose here today is is to focus upon how this reality completes the story how Christ's return finishes the story that we began back there before creation to show you that that there is this progression there is this journey and there is a culmination to that journey and the first thing I want to note is that the return completes the story, it does not negate it. There are some who would take a position or a concept in terms of Christ's return in which it kind of just ignores everything else that's happened before. It, it kind of just wipes it, wipes that all away and, and removes all that and, and ignores all that and, and doesn't pay attention to all that. But I want us to understand that uh, Christ's coming is connected to all that we've already seen. It is a fulfillment. It is a completion. It is a, an expression of, of all that we have encountered. We see, first of all, that his appearance is consistent with his nature, with how he's revealed himself. In Revelation chapter 5, probably, I would say it's probably my favorite passage of scripture um it's it's uh, it, it's behind one of the songs we sang earlier 
today. Uh, it's a very powerful image for me. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so you have this, this, this opening kind of introduction here. And, and the, scroll, the scroll is the history of redemption. The, the scroll is the history of, of humanity. It is God's plan, God's work, God's design for uh, engaging a culture that has abandoned him, that has forsaken him, that has turned his back on him. That's what the scroll represents here in Revelation. That's what, that's what the, the book is about. And so the question is, who is able to carry out God's plan of redemption? Who's able to, to, to see that redemption come to fruition? Who's able to, to accomplish that task? And the text says that there wasn't anybody. And John begins to weep. Because where's the hope? Where's the rescue? Where's the deliverance? Where's the reconnection? Where is any of that? If no one can open the scroll of redemption, if no one can open the scroll of justice, if no one can open the scroll of mercy, if nobody can open this, this plan of God's working with humanity, where are we left? We're left with nothing. And as John reflects upon that in this visionary state, he begins to weep. And truly, if that's where the passage stopped, we would be weeping as well because we would be without hope. But it goes on. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we get our, our first picture, we get our first glimpse of what is going to happen and what we hope for and what we look forward to, we see the lion, the conqueror, the powerful one, the one with authority, the one with, with majesty, the one who has conquered his enemies, the one who has overthrown evil, the one who has, is capable and who has accomplished what God has set out in redeeming mankind and pulling mankind back to him and in establishing this relationship and transforming humanity. We see this one, we, we, we hear the words, the encouragement. The lion is here. The lion is here. And we think of that power. We think of that image. I can't help but think of the, the Chronicles of Narnia where you have the great battle coming and it doesn't look real good. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere here comes Aslan. And he comes in and he starts whooping everybody. 
The lion is here. The conqueror is here. And you think of that, and you're, and you're encouraged, and you're wowed, and you're, you're in awe. The one who can open the scroll is the lion. But then, then something extraordinary happens. John turns to look. He's heard these words, the lion is here, the, the, the conqueror is here, the victor is here. The one who can open the scrolls is here. And, and he looks, he turns, and I, I want to see this lion, I want to see that power, I want to see that majesty, I want to see that authority that's present in this one who conquers. But listen to what he sees. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to all the earth. I turned to see the conqueror. I turned to see the victor. I turned to see the one who have who can who can wipe everybody out and what do i see instead i see a lamb that's been slain how did god win how did god conquer how did god bring about his act of redemption not with a mighty military battle but with the death of his son on the cross the passover lamb who died in our place that's how the victory was won. That's how deliverance was accomplished. And so in those two figures, we see the nature of God. The conquering one, the authoritative one, the powerful one, the king of kings, but also the servant and the lamb that was slain. And as we've gone through our journey through the Bible, we've seen that. We've seen that God is in control. We've seen God is full of grace. We've seen God in his wrath. We've seen God in his faithfulness. We've seen God standing without rival. We've seen God worthy of worship, and we've seen him as the great Redeemer who died so that we might live. We've seen him as the one who empowers those who are his, and as the promise fulfiller. And we've seen that his timing is always perfect. And that he has prepared the church and the family as representations of him in this life that we live, in this existence that we enjoy. Later on in Revelation 19, John will We'll go on to, to write further of this one who's coming this and what that coming looks like. It says, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has name written on that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name of, by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper. The Lamb is where this passage starts. But it doesn't end there. You see the, the contrast that plays out in this passage. Those who are with Christ and those who are opposed. In this passage, you see what? You see him, he's called faithful and true. You see him described as the word of God. You see him as one who is without rival. You see him as one who is worthy of worship. You see him as a great redeemer. You see him as a great judge in wrath. He is consistent with how he has revealed himself throughout the word of God. So often we want to separate the, the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New. Uh, I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. He's so judgy and so, so uh, mean and, and all these other things. But I tell you, on the day of Christ's return, on the day of his great victory, he is described as what? One with a sword. One with a flame. One who comes to judge and to set all things right. Revelation is not anything new except for the fact that it finalizes everything. And in doing so, it creates a new situation, a new environment. But it is very much in line with, connected to all that has happened before. What we see about this passage, what we see about this revelation of who Jesus is, is that, as with everything else, it all comes down to relationship. It's all about relationship. It's always been about relationship. And I think too often we lose this focus when we make his return more about an event than about him. It's about him. It's about his power and his majesty and his declaration. Too often our obsession with the second coming actually becomes detrimental to our understanding of the second coming. One person put it this way, it is sadly ironic 
that the predictions of the prophets thus have the effect of nullifying the great commands of the prophets. That is, we get so obsessed with what we think will happen or what we believe the Bible is telling us will happen that we miss the commands for how to live and, and who Christ is and the relationship we've been called to. And so we see the the second way that the return completes the story does not negate it is that the wait is defined by the outcome. As we wait, we wait expectantly because of what we know will happen. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, what? Encourage one another with these words. Paul uses the return of Christ. Paul uses the, the, the understanding of Christ's return to, to tell us, first of all, that death is not the end. Death is not the end. He says that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Both my parents have, have gone and passed. I know many of you have experienced losses as well. And I mourn. On days like today, I mourn my mom's absence. I miss being able to get on the phone and call her, talk to her, hear her call me her baby. But I don't grieve as those who think they'll never see their parents again. I don't grieve as those who are without hope. Why? Because Christ has risen from the grave and Christ will return. The second thing we see here besides the death is not the end is that sin is not the victor. Sin doesn't win. I didn't mean that rhyme. It just happened. The image here is what? It's, it's of the victorious Christ. The language there where it talks about meeting him. That, that's, that's language of a, of a greeting and welcome. It's, it's, it's an image that was very familiar to the Roman world. When a victor came in from, from a battle, when a victor came in from from, um, from a, a great victory of a war, as he approached the city, all the people from the city would rush out to the city, rush out from that location and, and come alongside him. And they would praise him and they would encourage him and they would march in alongside him. It was part of the procession. And that's what Paul is drawing on here in this, this image, that is, as Jesus returns, there's, there's this meeting, there's this going to him and then coming back in, in, in the victory and the power that's expressed there. 
the kingdom is actualized. It's visible. And because death is not the end, and because sin is not the victor, we should live a life that's characterized now by empowered existence. We have power over sin. We have encouragement over our future. We have this, this uh, ability to respond to life in a way that's different. Isn't that what the angels spoke to the disciples when Jesus ascended in Acts 1, 10, and 11? And while they were gazing into heaven as they went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What's the angel saying here? Saying because he is coming back, his return is our inspiration. We do the work we do because we know it matters. We know it has a, a culminating effect. Because he's coming back, we know his imminent return is, is also a, a motivation to us. He can come back any moment. He can come back before I finish this message. So I want to live in a way where I'm ready for that. We also see that we're called. The angel, as they express these things, we're, are called, or they're what? They're called to, to engage the culture. Why do, are you standing here looking into the sky, he says? What, what's that mean? It means worship is key, but it's not everything. You can't stand looking up into the sky. You have to engage the culture. You have to spread the word. You have to communicate God's goodness. We're also called to work beyond our earthly standing. I, I think it's interesting that the that the angel addresses the disciples here as what? Men of Galilee. Why? Because Galilee was was understood as a as a backwater area. It was a disparaging term to be called a man from Galilee. You were considered less than. Didn't quite measure up. You weren't sophisticated. You weren't all the things you're supposed to be. And the angel uses that term here what? To say the work you're going to do has to go beyond these labels. has to go beyond the way the world sees you. It has to be empowered by the Spirit. It has to be driven by our love for Christ. At the height of World War II, there was a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was imprisoned for taking a stand against Hitler. And yet, even in his imprisonment, he continued to urge fellow believers to resist Nazi tyranny. He wrote letters, he, he, he preached messages, he, he did everything he could. And a group of Christians who believed that Hitler was the Antichrist, and therefore the return was about to happen, said, why do you expose yourself to all this danger? Jesus will return any day, and all your work and suffering will be for nothing. And Bonhoeffer simply said, if Jesus returns tomorrow, then tomorrow I'll rest from my labor. But today I have work to do. I must continue to struggle until it's finished. 
the hope of Christ's return is not an excuse to, to back away from everything. It is a call to engage our culture with all that we have. Second truth about this passage, this message, is that as with the rest of the story, his return is in his timing. In Matthew 24, immediately following the what's called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem mixed with the, the his coming, the expectation of his coming, he follows that with a series of parables that tell us, that communicate to us some truths about his coming. He tells us, first of all, that it will be unexpected. It will come at a time that nobody expects. It will come when, when nobody's really thinking it's going to happen. And then he says, he tells us a story where it's going to happen sooner than expected. In other words, some people are going to say, yeah, it's a ways down the road, and I don't need to worry about it, but then something's going to happen. And then he tells a story where it's going to be later than expected. That is, you have people who are who are doing kind of what Bonhoeffer's friends were, were suggesting here. Let, let's just go sit on the mountain and wait for Jesus' return. And because they do that, they what? They run out of quote resources. They run out of influence. They run out of those realities. And then he tells a parable about how he expects us to wait faithfully, to just be stewards of the resources, the talents, the gifts he's given us. What we see in these parables is what? That Christ's return is in his timing. And what we've seen already in our, in our journey through Scripture is that that timing will be perfect. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, why has it happened yet? Why has it happened yet? What are you waiting for? I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. What are you waiting for? Even so, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. But Peter tells us what he's waiting for. Peter communicates to us exactly what is behind the pause. He does not desire that any should fall, but that all would experience salvation. He may be waiting for you to make that commitment, that decision to follow him. I don't know what exactly is his pause, but I do know his timing will be exactly at the perfect moment for his glory and for our experience. The last thing that this passage tells us is that his arrival deals finally with all that oppose his rule. Revelation chapter 21 is a reflection of the world, the existence, reality, immediately after Christ's return. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And you might be wondering, where does the sea go? What's, what's up with the sea? <laughs> Why is that mentioned? Well, if you remember, as we've looked through the text, we talked about what? One of the primary images of opposition to God throughout, especially the Old Testament, is the sea. It was in their world, in their culture, in their environment, that part of nature, that part of life that had not been conquered, that had not been overcome. Shipping at that time was a very precarious, dangerous thing. You get into your boat in the Mediterranean, you may not be seen again. It's a very real reality. And so the sea was this image of ultimate power, of chaos, of, of evil. And over and over again throughout the text, we've seen how God has as, as it's not a challenge to him. Whether it's hovering over the, the face of the deep in Genesis 1 or in Exodus 15, breathing out of his nostrils and the sea splitting into two so that the people could pass by on dry land. Or the reflection of such battles in, in Psalms or in other locations. Or Jesus standing up in the boat saying, Peace be still. And the water stopped. And what? The disciples were terrified. Who is this man that even the sea, even the waters listen to him? And so when John reflects that the sea was no more, he's saying, what? There's no opposition anymore. There's nothing that even comes close to reminding us of, of opposition. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. All opposition, sin, death, pain, chaos, they're all gone. All gone. In Christ dwells in power and authority. He is the story. He is the revelation. He is the communication of the very essence and nature of God. And it's to Him that we respond. It's to Him that we look forward to. It's to Him that we call out and cry for and, and desire. I mentioned earlier that my mom had passed, my dad had passed, and, and I, that I miss them dearly. But I want you to understand, as much as I miss them, as much as I want them around, it's not a reunion with them that I look for to most it's seeing my Savior face to face it's walking with my God he is with them and they are with him the text says that is our calling that is 
our place. And that's why we talk about salvation as a relationship. Our goal is not my preservation. Our goal is connecting with Him. It's getting back to who we were. If you read the rest of chapter 21, what you discover is that it's describing a new Eden. It's describing a new garden where mankind walks with God just as Adam and Eve walked with God before the fall. And right there in the midst of it is what? It's the tree of life. God's provision for eternal existence with Him. Not hampered, not hindered by sin, but unmitigated, unquestioned, unlimited connection to the one we were made for, to the one in whose image we were created. That's our future. If we have accepted Christ, if we've given ourselves to Him, if we've entered into that relationship with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the hope that we have the future that we can look forward to because of what you've already accomplished and what you're doing in our lives right now. God, I pray right now that if there's if there's someone here who does not have a relationship with you, does not have confidence in their future, who doesn't know what it means to, to be able to look into the future, to be able to look at their life right now and, and to feel your presence and your peace and the hope that you only can install and still. God, I pray that you would draw them in your power and they would respond in faith. God, I, I pray for your, your blessings here this morning on each person. And I pray that if there's this other decision besides salvation that needs to be made, that you would lay that on hearts as well, whether it's uniting with our church or committing to missions, service, ministry, just rededicating ourselves to to walk in a way that reflects you in our everyday life. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would draw and we'd be faithful to respond. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.